0: Welcome to the Nach Daily, a congregation, a HaVas Torah initiative. Today, we are going to deal with chapters 10 through 12, which function as a unit. And so we'll deal with them as such, and also in this way, prepare for the weekend ahead. It's a unit that's bracketed on the front end and the back end with a brief sketch of a few shoftim whose lives we know little about. But the bulk of this unit deals with Yiftach. Let's jump right in. Chapter number 10, opens with that that little uh, brief treatment of a few shoftim and then it tells us that the nation falls again into sin but this time it lists in great detail all of the gods that the Bnei Yisrael were worshiping Baal, Ashtoret, the gods of Aram and Sidon, Moab, Amon and the Plishtim but we were not worshiping our god god with a capital g. And the effect of all these details is to drive home and to set up a sense that somehow now we had crossed a certain line, fallen to a new low of disloyalty via, uh, uh, vis-a-vis God. Hashem then punishes us, punishes the B'nai Israel by dispatching the plishtim and the uh, people of Amon, plishtim being from the southwest and Amon from the east, uh, against us. And our focus in these prakim will be in the campaign against Amon. Apparently this was a particularly oppressive regime, no doubt in proportion to the Bnei Israel's sinfulness. And Ben Israel then call out to God, who responds by telling them, go and call out to your precious idols, let them save you. Hashem is clearly extremely angry, so to speak, kaviachl, but using the terms uh, that we that we understand and that are intuitively available to us, so Hashem is extremely angry at the bin Israel. The people then call out and say, "Hashem, just give us one more chance, please save us now, intervene, and uh, you can punish us uh, another time, but but we really need you right now to intervene and Hashem ultimately does not respond to that in the affirmative, but we 're told that Hashem couldn't countenance seeing the Bnei Yisrael Yisrael suffer in the way that they did, and were made to understand that Hashem therefore um, inspires and causes Yiftach to be successful as the Shofet that will come up now uh, in the following parak. Before we get there, though, what's fascinating about this parak is how abstract it is. It takes place kind of on the 30,000-foot level, because... There's this conversation going on between Hashem and the Bnei Israel, but what, where did that take place? What are the particulars of that? Was there a mass revelation? Presumably not. The Bnei Yisrael are not on a level to have mass revelation. Was it through a Navi? Was it through an angel? Was it through a Shofet? How did this conversation take place? And, and I view it as a kind of 30,000-foot level in terms of the, the spiritual conversation that was happening between the Bnei Israel and Hashem. It's, it's, it's kind of like the divine context in which the story of Yiftach takes place, and it, it tends towards this kind of abstract spiritual conversation happening between Hashem and the Jewish people. And then the story of Yiftach is, I think, a particularly terrestrial telling of a story. It's a very human perspective uh, of the story, more so than our previous accounts of other shoftim, as I'll demonstrate. So, for example, Yiftach was not appointed by Hashem. I'll clarify by saying, initially, what we find is that the leaders of the of B'nai Israel in the Transjordan come to Yiftach and ask them to lead him. And then later on, uh, considerably later on, we find that Hashem rests his spirit upon Yiftach. So there is a post-facto uh, nod to Yiftach and, and, a, and a, a, a spirit that drives him that is granted by Hashem. But initially, Yiftach rises to power, not through some revelation in the way Gidon comes to power, or in the way that the safer generally frames Shoftim by saying, and Hashem uh, caused this person or Hashem uh, sent this person or we we have uh, a people, leaders, Shoftim that emerge at the hands or uh, by the design of Hashem. Of course, everything is by the design of Hashem, but literally, the way this is presented to us is that the leaders came to Yiftach and that was done, um, it's not presented as having been done by Hashem, at least not, initially so it's a very human telling of the story and we'll see later another example of how this is a particularly human telling of events so we have this interesting contrast we have this parak yud we have the 10th parak which is a, a like a, a very abstract kind of spiritual conversation happening between Knesset israel the whole the whole people of israel and god and then we have the very human telling of the story uh, in which hashem's not the one who is really appointing yiftach it's the people who are appointing Yiftach. It's an interesting kind of contrast here and, uh, and an, interesting, an interesting facet of this parak. Then we move on to Perak Yud Aleph, chapter 11, and we meet Yiftach. We're given backstory for Yiftach, more detail than we generally get. He was the son of a harlot, and his half-brothers drive him out of their home so he would not inherit, inherit their father together with them. The story is vaguely familiar. It's, it's kind of like Yishmael's story, Yishmael being driven out by Sarah, uh, only that Yishmael was the son of Hagar, who was a handmaiden of Sarah, not a harlot. So our story, not only does it kind of imagine what would happen if a Yishmael-type character became the protagonist, right? rather than being kind of pushed to the margins of history, if, if Yishmael actually became the leader, but uh, it imagines someone who's even lower on the totem pole even more marginal, becoming a leader of the nation because Yiftach is the son of a harlot. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating story of this kind of uh, nobody or marginalized character turned great leader. Um, it's really interesting if we juxtapose this to Avimelech, who we discussed just yesterday as being the son of a Shechemite concubine to Gidon. who we also spoke about how his story may be somehow an outgrowth of his marginalized status, or at least how his marginalized status is an interesting window into his psyche. So here too, we have this very marginal person, the, the, the son of a prostitute, of a harlot. And, uh, and then we find that he's exiled from his home, and he goes and he hangs around with these bandits. So he's, he's really at the fringes of society. And the leaders in the Transjordan turn to him, and they ask him if he will lead them in their fight against Amon. He does so, and after uh, the leaders vow to keep him as their leader, if he is successful, he goes and he, he leads the charge to battle. Interestingly, though, his first move is to engage in diplomacy, basically asking Amon, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you bothering us? And this gives Amon a chance to speak. And for the first time, it, it gives us the enemy's perspective. And this ties back to what I was the point I was making before about the, this narrative of, of Yiftach being a particularly human telling of the story. Up until now, when the people of Israel sin, Hashem sends enemies to punish them. Of course... There were some facts on the ground, some rational reason for these attacks from their perspective. When the Canaanim uh, attack, when the uh, people of Amon or Moab or whomever attack, they do so because they had some reason. They're not just walking, waking up in the morning and like robots thoughtlessly attacking B'nai Israel at Hashem's behest. They did so because they needed food or resources or they saw weakness and wanted to capitalize and grab strategic high, high ground or highways uh, there are always there's of course ra- a rationale for why they attack the Bene Israel, but the Sefer literally presents it simply as the Bene Israel sin and Hashem sends Moav. But only now do we actually learn in this instance uh, the human uh, component of our enemies and and the rationale for our enemies. And we're told they're they're, they're doing this for X and Y reason. Fascinating to consider, but. We're not going to deal with that today, what the reason that they give is. But the point is, the very fact that we're getting the human experience of our foes and and what's driving them, and it's not simply, we sin, so Hashem sends them, is another uh, dimension of how this is such a human telling of the story in a way that actually departs from everything that we have seen so far. Bottom line is, they end up fighting, Yiftach is victorious, and then he returns home after battle. Parenthetically, before the battle, Yiftach promises to Hashem that if he's victorious, he's going to sacrifice whatever, and presumably whomever, comes out of his house first to greet him. I suppose we would have to assume he was saying, he was assuming an animal was going to come out to greet him, but unfortunately it was his one and only daughter who comes out to greet him, and and he offers her as a sacrifice, dutifully honoring his word, And his daughter, amazingly likewise, she doesn't put up a fight also out of deference to the the power of his vow, which is just so odd. It's this remarkable—this episode is so hard to wrap your head around because it's this remarkable sense of loyalty and integrity and faith expressed by Yiftach in honoring his word in a way that really evokes and is meant to evoke literarily Akedas Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac— which is pretty much the pinnacle of human fealty and loyalty to God. But here, Yiftach attains that in a way that's obviously not celebrated and is obviously so perverse and so off-base and so tragic. So what do you do with, with that mixture of emotions? And I think that we need to think about Yiftach on a few levels as very much a product of his time. The fact that a Shofet of his generation was the son of a harlot is a reflection on the generation that it itself was harloting around with other gods, right? That's, that's the message of the, the leader of this generation, the, the savior is gonna be someone who is is born in a most inglorious way and with no great pedigree in the way that Akneel had. And, uh, and and so he is the, the Shofet that this generation deserves in terms of this particular expression of him kind of going off the rails and giving his own daughter as a sacrifice, which is obviously abhorred by God. So I think the best paradigm to think about this would be Lot, who you'll recall back in Safer Bracius in Genesis, he welcomes the angels into his home in Sodom. And when the people of the town come and want to essentially defile, uh, to rape the the visitors, quote unquote, which are the angels, Lot says, no, don't, you can't come in, take my daughters instead. So is that a great act or is that an act of perversion? Is this heroic or terrible? And the answer is that it's, it's kind of both. He was great, but he was skewed by his environment. He lived in an, an immoral environment. And so everything that he did was somehow off base. And the same is the case with Yiftach. He displays enormous piety by sacrificing his daughter, his one and only daughter, but it's a piety that's in a funhouse mirror. It's totally skewed, which ultimately amounts to a barbarous act of murder, anathema to the divine will. In parak, uh, you'd bet the next Perek, Yiftach will oversee a civil war uh, with Ephraim, and yet another dark chapter of Shoftim, as he flies further and further off the rails, and, and ends in, in a noble death, ignoble death, uh, having only judged for about six years. And then after that, uh, we enter the Shoftim cycle. Once more, so that's a, a kind of an overview of this very complex character, uh, who ultimately is the show fate that is appropriate for a generation that is at an extreme low. That's it for today. Chazak ve and happy learning.